and we're up and running. Okay, well, we are just beginning today, Genesis chapter 42. And uh, we, uh, uh, we had a couple weeks off uh, to do uh, other things with the other campus groups the last couple Sundays. So you're going to have to really kind of, you know, take your Alzheimer's medicine and kick your minds into gear and go back and try and remember the things we talked about uh, the last time we were together three weeks ago. But uh, we were uh, we were in the last uh, last part of chapter 41. Uh, I know that because today we're starting chapter 42. So <laughs> but we're in the last part of chapter 41. And um, I think we picked it up uh, three weeks ago. I think our, the passage we started on was about verse 46 and down through the end of the end of the chapter. So so look down through those things. We need to try to kind of get our minds back in gear of this flow of the story here. So look down through those verses before we go on to read and talk about our passage today and think about what did we talk about the last time we were together three weeks ago. Yeah, it's uh, it's what what happens when we have good times, don't we? We kind of forget that things aren't always going to be good. <laughs> so uh, fortunately, the Lord had warned Egypt through Joseph, and so Egypt alone, apparently, of all the nations of the earth, was actually prepared for this uh, uh, this famine that was coming. How old was Joseph when? When he was promoted, 30. Okay, so the beginning of the famine, he's 30 years old, which is how long since he's been in Egypt now? How long has he been in Egypt? 13 years. Okay, he's been in Egypt for 13 years. He is now promoted to prime minister of Egypt, uh, second in command under Pharaoh. And uh, so then we have uh, the seven years of plenty, which makes him 37 approximately. And now today's story, as we get into the story today, uh, the famine has begun. So uh, for just to kind of set the time context, uh, Joseph is probably about 38 years of age. And it's been about 21 years since he was uh, sent to Egypt as a slave. What else did we talk about several weeks ago? Pardon? Okay, there are a lot of pairs, aren't there? There's a lot of, uh, of uh, kind of repetition in pairs, and, and the narrator uses that to emphasize certain, certain things to us. So, what else? I thought it was interesting that he named his firstborn forget. Uh huh. That he was forgetting all of his trouble and his father's household. Okay. Every time he said that name. He's remembering. Yeah. Yeah. So what he does is he's actually memorializing forgetting. (laughs) It's kind of interesting, isn't it? So what we're trying, one of the things I'm trying to point out in that is, is that when it says that when Joseph says that he had forgotten all his trouble and all his father's house, it doesn't mean that they were out of his mind. It doesn't mean that they were 
you know, that, that, that they were no longer significant or important to him in his life. But what it, remember, what, it, what it means is that he's gone on in his life and all the trouble that was associated with his father's house is no, is no longer afflicts him as it used to afflict him because of the way God has blessed him and prospered him in, uh, in, uh, in the place where he is now. So, so it's not like he never thinks about dad. It's not, it's not like... Uh, it's, it's not like they've just been blocked out of his memory, but rather that he has moved on from this and, and the trouble is no longer afflicts him or burdens him because God has blessed him so much. What's the significance of that? You know, I suggested that maybe that's a, a lesson to us about something. Do you remember what that was? Did you ever wonder what you're going to remember when you get to heaven? You know, uh, am I going to be? Am I going to remember my family? You know, am I going to remember uh, the things that God did? Am I going to remember my salvation when I get to heaven? You know, well, I, I think quite clearly we are going to remember those things, and that's one thing that's going to make heaven so <coughs> wonderful is <coughs> being able to remember back. So. So we will be able to remember that God saved us from sin and from all the suffering and all the anguish and things that we endured on this in this life. But those things will no longer afflict us. Those things will no longer burden us. So we'll, there will be a sense in which they are forgotten and that they no longer weigh us down. But but we'll be real, we'll be able to remember them and we'll want to remember them in order to to see and understand and appreciate the greatness of heaven and the greatness of what God has done for us. So. What else? Yeah. 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 And his name was? Would you like to tell us what his name? <laughs> Bob was pretty good. Bob could do it for us. What is it, Bob? Zaphanaphtanea. Okay. Zaphanaphtanea. And he got an Egyptian name. He got Egyptian clothes. He got an Egyptian job. He got an Egyptian wife. He's been completely naturalized as an Egyptian, okay? And this becomes important as we get into the story today. So, so if you're walking down the street and you run across Zaphanaphtanea, okay, uh, you come across him, you, you, you know, usually he doesn't look like a, a Hebrew from Canaan anymore. He just looks like an Egyptian to you. He acts like an Egyptian. He talks like an Egyptian. Uh, he dresses like an Egyptian. Uh, and uh, and he has an Egyptian wife, okay. But when he has children, what does he name them? With what kind of names? Hebrew names, okay. And I think that's important because it 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 reveals to us that though he, though Joseph has, in order to to do the things that God has given him to do, he has he has assimilated into Egypt, okay. But he has not forgotten his heritage. He has not forgotten his family in that sense. And those things are still valuable and they are precious to him. So when he names his sons, and he names them particular names because of their what they represent to him, okay, one representing his forgetting his father's house and the trouble associated with his father's house, and the other representing that he is now fruitful in the land of his affliction. That he chooses names that mean that, but he doesn't choose Egyptian names that mean that. He chooses Hebrew names that mean that. Okay, so it still reveals in Joseph a close affinity 
and affection for his family and for his heritage. Okay. Uh, what else? All, all analogies fall short on this. But what we could have is Joseph provided grain to all the kings. Jesus gives us life. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we talked about there at the end of chapter 41, it talks about how all the nations of the earth are coming to Egypt to buy grain. And as we'll see in our passage today, when they come to buy grain, who do they have to talk to? Zaphonath They have to, okay, they have to actually, you know, it, it, it seems, it seems unusual to us today, but they would actually have to go to this number two guy in the country and actually talk to him personally, okay? As we will see his brothers do. And so, so you have this, you have these caravans and these groups of people coming and going from Egypt, okay? And there are people coming and they're hungry and, they're, and their sacks are empty and their camels are bare and they're coming into Egypt. And coming out of Egypt, you have people whose bags are full of grain and whose camels and donkeys and things are weighed down with grain. And as they cross paths, as these groups coming and going cross paths with one another, you cannot help but imagine, and the Scripture doesn't really talk about this, but you can't help but imagine that this name of this great man to to whom every one of these people must go and and plead for uh, the right to buy grain, that the name of this man is spreading throughout the entire world. The name of Zaphonathpaneah. And it is, I think, a, 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 in some sense, a picture for us of Christ, our great Zaphonath Paneah, the one to whom we go in order to receive the staff of life, the bread of life. And, uh, and we, we who have received will walk away and we speak of this one, this great one to whom we have come uh, for, uh, for bread and for sustenance and for life. And uh, so we'll talk a little bit more about that today. Anything else you want to bring up from our last time? Yeah, Gary. I've been thinking about this in, in, in the following chapters where it talks more about Joseph's son and And I don't want to get too political here, but in, in light of the things that are going on in the occupied Wall Street or these different places, mm-hmm. and they speak of, of how we gives this great want and you know, abundance to some. Uh, how they seem to want things that are just supposed to be given to them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And yet Joseph here <coughs> sells this stuff, and I don't know what kind of bargain he drove. But I imagine it was a pretty good bargain for Taylor. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, we'll find out later what kind of a bargain he drove. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I'm just wondering, Joseph, I think, was doing what was right. But I'm, 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 I'm wrestling with that in, in, in terms of, of the social context. The sure, yeah. Uh, and that is, that is a question that I had given some thought to because I thought it would come up maybe earlier than this. Uh, it is a question I given some thought to. But what I, the, the question is, does, does what Joseph is doing, and we'll deal with this more as we go on in the story, is, is Joseph's plan that he sets forth and then the way he administers that plan, is that a paradigm for the 21st century? Is that a paradigm for our, uh, for our culture and our society and our government today? And I would suggest to you emphatically that it is not a paradigm. Okay? It is simply what Joseph did in a crisis situation 
4,000 years ago in a totally, entirely different kind of culture, in a, in a culture, culture of patriarchal tribalism, which is dramatically different from our populist democratic society that we live in today. So it's an, it's an entirely different context. And if we try and take what Joseph did in that context and see that, say that that's the norm for the way governments ought to function today, it would be quite a stretch indeed. So, Given that he was supplying the most basic need of life, he probably could have taken any price he wanted. Yeah. And there's no evidence that... That he exploited it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the fact that all the nations of the earth were coming and were uh, and and were purchasing is indicative that his prices were not were not exorbitant <laughs> because people were coming from far and wide in order to in order to. I don't know how many nations there were then, but they could have all, the nations could have attacked Yes, which is actually something that he's very sensitive to, as we see in this passage. Okay, that we're going to look at today. Well, let's pick it up and and uh, and get into the story today. Um, Beginning in chapter 42, in verse 1, it says, Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, and Jacob said to his sons, Why are you staring at one another? He said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us from that place, so that we may live and not die. Then ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, I am afraid that harm may befall him. So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming for the the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the ruler over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. And he said to them, Where have you come from? And they said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. But Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. Joseph remembered the dreams which he'd had about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. And we'll stop right there because we'll be doing good to get that far. Uh, So we're kind of interrupting the story there, but you'll have to forgive me. Now, one of the things that kind of strikes me here as we get into chapter 42 is we have we have really we have a dramatic step forward now in the narrative in the story. So, of course, it is a it is kind of a good place to have a kind of a chapter break, if you will. Um, although the chapters, of course, are not inspired as part of the inspired scripture, but it's a good place to put the break because it is a it is a very definite step forward in the narrative in the story. Okay, but it's very closely linked to what's just been happening before, and 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 what's interesting to me is kind of the shift in our perspective because for the last three chapters our minds have been totally focused on Egypt. And on Joseph and Jacob and the family, we just totally left them. We have, we've hardly talked about them, okay, over the last number of weeks as we've covered our uh, the story of the last three chapters. Now the narrator takes us and he just lifts us up from these palatious houses and 
and the royalty and the pomp and all of that that's associated with Egypt and Joseph's situation there. And he picks us up from that and he takes us back to Canaan. He takes us back to Hebron. He takes us back to the tents of the shepherds there on the hills of Hebron. And we once again now are back here. So for the last three chapters, we've been following the story of Joseph and we've been seeing the development in his life. We've seen how he goes from being a, uh, being sold into slavery and then he's placed as a slave in Potiphar's house and then he raises to greatness as a slave and then he's thrown into prison and then he raises, rises to greatness as a prisoner. And then, and then he's elevated to the place, uh, uh, to the second most high, place, high uh, position in Egypt. And he's, he's now in the palace and he's functioning uh, in the palace there and, and traveling all over Egypt. And that's been our mind. And now we go back to his family and we encounter his family back in the land of Canaan. And what strikes me is nothing's changed. Do you notice that? The narrative opens and it says that Jacob has heard that there's grain in the land of Egypt and he turns to his sons and what does he say to them? Why are you staring at each other? So here we have these guys who seem no more able to act responsibly and decisively than they were 20 years earlier. They just haven't grown up. Now, there have been some things going on. And I want you to remember, when we studied chapter 38, which was the story of Judah and Tamar, which was kind of inserted there, right there at the beginning of the Joseph story, we started the story of Joseph, and then then the narrator sticks the story of Judah and Tamar in there, and then we go back to the story of Joseph again. Remember how he did that? And remember when we said that, when we talked about that in chapter 38, what we said, chapter 38 actually covers that entire 20-year period. Remember? So the story of Judah and Tamar in chapter 38 covers the time from when Joseph is sold into slavery until the sons go down to Egypt. Okay. So I want want you to remember that the events that we're looking at now in chapter 42 are happening just after the conclusion of the Judah-Tamar incident. Okay? So it's right after, shortly after, maybe possibly weeks or a few months, not, not more than a year, after Judah has been confronted by Tamar and has confessed that he was wrong and then repented of his wrong with Tamar and dealt with her righteously from that point forward. So there have been some changes, but on the surface, we don't see them. We come back to, we come back to Hebron after all these years, and here's this family, and here's, here's Jacob still irritated with his ten sons, and here are his ten sons who still are just sitting around, unable to figure out how are we going to solve this problem. Now, what's particularly stands out to me about this is that if you look around everybody else in Canaan, they seem to have figured it out, right? Because everybody else from Canaan is going down to Egypt to buy grain, right? But the brothers, Joseph's brothers there, can't seem to figure out how to solve their problem. And I, 
you know, I don't know totally what's going on there. Scripture doesn't tell us, but I, but I just wonder if there has been there's just been so much moral compromise in the lives of these ten guys that it has just rendered them incapable of acting wisely and decisively. It's just kind of like they've been emasculated. And and so their father looks at him and he's frustrated with him and he says, why are you guys just sitting around looking at each other? There's grain in Egypt for crying out loud. Pack your camels and get going, you know. We've got, we've got to get some grain so that we can live and not die. And so he sends all of his sons off to Egypt, right? Oh, no, uh-uh, he doesn't. And so again, we see that not much has changed in the house of Jacob, right? Now, Joseph is gone and he can't show favoritism for Joseph, but ah, oh, there's Joseph's little brother. And so now, now he's apparently transferred the favoritism that he had shown to Joseph for all those years. He's transferred to Joseph's little brother, to Benjamin. And so now here we have this pattern and you think, Jacob, do you never learn? You know, what does it take to get through to Jacob? Here is Jacob whose own life of trouble began because his parents showed favoritism, right? Because Isaac showed favoritism to Esau and Rebekah showed favoritism to Jacob and that caused all the hassle and all the trouble and it cost him a broken relationship with his brother Esau for many years and it cost him all those years of exile up there with Laban and serving Laban. And yeah, I mean, there's so much trouble that comes in Jacob's life because of the favoritism that his parents engaged in. And instead of learning from that, he repeats the mistake. And he repeats it with Joseph. And then when Joseph finally disappears from the scene, he, he repeats it with Benjamin. <laughs> and so now he's protecting Benjamin. And, and the thing that strikes me about this thing about favoritism is oftentimes when we think about favoritism, we think about how destructive it is to the, to the children who don't receive that kind of favor and that kind of affection and that kind of love. And we see that in the life of Esau and we see it in the life of Joseph's ten brothers. But favoritism doesn't only destroy the people who are excluded, but it also destroys the lives of the people to whom that favoritism is shown, doesn't it? It destroys Jacob's life. It destroys Joseph's life. Of course, we see how God turned it to good. But apart from the grace of God and apart from Joseph's response to his negative circumstances, it would have destroyed him. And so I, as I read this, I'm thinking, okay, here's Benjamin. He's a grown man now. He's in his 20s, at least. He's a grown man. And daddy says, you can't go with your brothers because I'm afraid you might get hurt. And I'm thinking, what does Benjamin think about all this? Yeah. Well, those are just some thoughts to think about, okay? But, so here we have this family which has moved on. It's 20 years later, and it seems like these same patterns are being repeated. Now, we're going to find out that there are some changes. 
and there's going to be some dramatic change happens over the next year. Okay, so so I don't want you to lose hope here. But the thing that strikes me about Jacob here and his failure to learn from his mistakes is I just like, do I learn from my mistakes? Or, Or do I just go on in my life repeating the same mistakes over and over and over again? You know, there, there have been some there have been some things in my life. There have been mistakes in my life. I'm sure there have been in yours as well. There have been mistakes in my life. And by God's grace, I've learned from them. I'm not repeating all the same mistakes I made when I was in my 20s and 30s. Uh, you know, and I, I'm just glad for that, <laughs> you know. But on the other hand, I think, too, you know, Lord, and I was praying about this yesterday as I was thinking through this passage. Lord, are there. Are there areas in my life where I'm just blind? Where I've done the same stupid things over and over again and I have just like Jacob, I just close my eyes to the effect that it's having on people and to, the, to, to what it's doing to me and what it's doing to others and I just keep doing it and I'm, and I'm indifferent to, or, or I just think that that's just me and that's, you know, that's just my temperament, that's the, that's the way I've got to be and so I, you know, I just can't change. I don't know why Jacob didn't change. But the thing that challenged me was to, was to say, God, are there, are there areas in my life where I'm being like Jacob and where I'm, I'm just repeating the same mistakes over again? Are there are some areas where I can grow, where I can change, that where I've been reluctant or resistant to grow and change in? Well, so he, uh, he, he sends his sons and, and they head off. They head off for Egypt, and it just it just mentions that they're going down there with all these other people. And so I get this picture. I, I know I'm kind of using a hope, a little sanctified imagination here, you know, when I think about this. But I keep thinking about this scenario of people being on the roads to and from Egypt, you know, and talking about Zaphonath Paneah, you know. And so here are the twelve, the, excuse me, the ten sons of. Jacob and they're going down to Egypt and they're going with all these other people and they're encounter people coming back and everybody saying, now when you get to Egypt, you've got to go to Zaphonathpaneah. You know, you're going to have to go to him and you're going to have to bow down to him. You're going to have to show this homage to him and then you're going to have to ask him if you can buy grain from Egypt. You know? and, and so this is the kind of thing that the sons are hearing about as they're approaching Egypt. And they have no idea who Zaphonathpaneah is. They have no idea that it's the brother that they took and stripped of his garment and threw in a pit and then drug out of the pit with him screaming at them for mercy and begging for them, as we will learn later. He begged them not to do it and cried out to them not to do it. And they closed their hearts to him and they sold him into slavery. And they have no idea now as they're approaching Egypt and they're hearing about this great Zaphonathpaneah. That is someone. And as I was thinking about that yesterday, I was just thinking how that, you know, I see all kinds of metaphors in this story. Is that not a metaphor for Israel? Is that not a metaphor for Israel for all these many centuries, millennia? Israel has been waiting and waiting and waiting for its Christ. And one day, someday, they are going to see 
their Christ. And they are going to embrace him. And they are going to look on him whom they pierced. And they are going to embrace him. And they are going to be reconciled. But at this time, today, Israel is like those ten brothers of Joseph going down to Egypt. Going to the one they know has the key to life for them. And having no idea it's the one they sold into slavery. So they get to Egypt, as the story tells us here. They get to Egypt and they come. And when they get to Zaphonathpaneah, when they get to Joseph, what do they do? They bow down, and it emphasizes it, with their faces to the ground. <laughs> and, and we think about, of course, you know, immediately we're making all kinds of connections in our mind, okay, as we should. But as we, as we contemplate that, as we, as we think about that, we realize that these are the same ten guys who were hell-bent on making sure Joseph's dreams did not come true. There was nothing that they would not do to prevent Joseph's dreams from coming true. They were going to kill him. And the only reason they decided not to kill him was because they decided they could make money off of him. So these are guys who were so hell-bent on preventing the fulfillment of the purpose of God. Of those dreams that Joseph had. And they stripped him of his garment and they threw him in the pit and they said, now what's become of your dreams? And they mocked him. And they didn't realize that the moment that they were doing that, they were actually setting in motion the fulfillment of the dream they were trying to prevent. And now here we are 21 years later and the guys who were hell-bent on preventing the fulfillment of the dream and who had, by their actions, actually set the fulfillment of the dream in motion, now here they are beginning the fulfillment of that dream itself. And they are doing the very thing that they swore they would never do. Of course, they don't know it yet. They don't know it yet, but, but here they are. And as I, as I think about that, I just think about how inevitable are the purposes of God. Well, Ricky, I was on a mentor that fell down and down and told them helpless that it's not a superficial part. Oh, let's take on it because they told us. Yeah. And that is the other part about analogy of where we will back where there is a utter helplessness Absolutely. that they are in that we are in that when we come to Christ we are utterly without yeah. helplessness. These guys are totally at Joseph's mercy. Mm-hmm. Totally at Joseph's mercy. Not only are they totally at Joseph's mercy because they and their wives and their children are back in Canaan starving. And they have no way to feed their families. And Joseph has all this wealth and grain. Not only are they at mercy there, but they're, they're at Joseph's mercy 
Because Joseph knows something they don't know. They are completely vulnerable. And they come and they, and they bow down. But the thing that, that strikes me is these are, the guys, these are the guys who set this whole thing in motion. And now it's being hooked. And they had done everything they could to try to prevent it. And I thought, it's just like Satan, isn't it? It's just what Satan did. Satan was hell-bent, if I can use the term. Satan was hell-bent on preventing God from redeeming man through Christ. He would do whatever he could to prevent it. And so what did he do? He stirred up the hatred of the Jews. He stirred up the hatred of the Pharisees and the, and the Sanhedrin. And he had Jesus crucified. And he thought he'd won. And when he did that, he actually drug a, 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 drove a dagger through himself. And so here are these brothers and they have done everything they could and now the dream is being fulfilled. As they bow down before Jacob, Joseph. So, you know, this is... This is kind of, there are several kind of pinnacles or mountaintops in this story, and this is one of them. And we, we relish in this moment, don't we? Because we identify with Joseph, okay? And so, here is Joseph, and we've, we've agonized through all that he's agonized through, and we've groaned and, and wept with Joseph as he went through everything he went through. And then when he was finally elevated, we've rejoiced and we've exulted in his elevation. And so we've, we've so identified with Joseph. And so now we view ourselves where we picture ourselves there with Joseph, standing there with Joseph or sitting there with Joseph. And here are all these people coming from all over the world and they're coming and they're bowing down to him and they're asking to buy grain and Joseph is having to stand there and make decisions about all these people that are coming and he's having to discern which one of these people are legitimate. Are there any people into sneaking in here that we don't want here in Egypt? Okay, And he's having to ferret all these out because that's his responsibility. He's second in command in all of Egypt. And so he's got to figure out are there, somebody mentioned this earlier, you know, are there, you know, are there bad people coming in who want to exploit or want to steal our grain or things like this? So he's, He's in this position and there are all these hundreds of people probably coming every day. I don't, you know, I, I don't know how many came daily, but he's seen. And then all of a sudden he sees out there in the crowd, he sees those ten guys. I am astonished at the wisdom of Joseph. When we read these things earlier in the story about God being with him and him having wisdom and all that sort of thing and God's presence, and, you know, we read those things and we go, well, that's cool. And we see how he prospered in the Potiphar's house and he prospered when he was in prison and we see all that. But now we really, we're really starting to see it, really what it looked like. Okay? And this is what it looks like. What would you have done if you were in Joseph's place? And it was your ten brothers you saw out there. Who had sold you into slavery? Well, I tell you, I would have started stuttering. The last thing I would have been able to do was come up with a plan. You know, I'll go for three. What do I do now? You know, you know, I, you know, 
I'd probably dismiss everybody and say, oh, guys, I've got to take three days off here. I've got to figure something out here, you know. And three days later, I'd come back and I still wouldn't have a plan, you know. I would be rendered in. But here's, he's just so cool about it. And it's one of the remarkable things we see about Joseph. Do you think he might have seen it coming? I mean, he, he knew that he still had his dream. Mm-hmm. He knew someday he would see him again. Well, maybe, yeah. And he said, well, it makes sense. The whole world's coming. These guys have got to come up too. Well, that's a good point, yeah. So I was wondering if he... May not have been a complete surprise. Yeah, well, that's... Waiting... So they'll probably be here someday. Well, that's a, that's a good point. Yeah, it, it may have been the case. Yeah. So, so they come and they bow down before him. Okay. And he, and he makes a point. He emphasizes it twice here. He says it twice. He says that Joseph recognized them, but they did not recognize Joseph. Okay. Well, why don't they recognize Joseph? Okay. He just looks like a, he looks totally like an Egyptian. I mean, in the first place, they would never have expected that the guy they sold into slavery is going to be Zaphonath Panea. That, that, that thought would never enter their mind in the first place. But they come and he's up there. Well, yeah, we'll get to that in just a minute. But even before that, he's clean shaven. Okay, Hebrews, you know, wear beards. He's clean shaven. He's not wearing a very colored tunic anymore. He's wearing the royal robes of Egypt. He speaks Egyptian. He speaks through a translator. We'll see as we go on in the story. So he speaks Egyptian. He has an Egyptian wife. He's, he's just, to them, he's just totally Egyptian. Okay. Yeah, all that funny. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so yeah, they probably weren't used to Joseph wearing eyeshadow. Uh, But uh, so, so he looks totally different. But then it says, notice it says it does say he disguised himself. Well, come on, folks, he's already in a disguise. You know, what did he do? Put on a mask? Put on a wig? What did he do? What did he do? What does it say he did? It says he disguised himself and what? Spoke to them harshly. Okay? In other words, Joseph uses a demeanor with them that they don't recognize. Now, remember the last time we saw the relationship between Joseph and his brothers before the whole thing where they sold him into slavery was his brothers couldn't speak to him on friendly terms. Remember, it told us that. Go back in chapter 37. Okay. So you got this tension between Joseph and his brothers even before the crisis incident. Okay. Um, they couldn't speak to him on friendly terms. And when you have that kind of a dynamic going in a family, you know, it's, it's the older brothers looking down on the little brother and they can't speak to him, you know. And so he's, he's just kind of in this kind of, you know, inferior position. And when you're in an inferior position, you don't, you don't usually... Treat your big brothers harshly because you can't. Because if you do, you get beat to a pulp. And I can tell you that because I'm the youngest of three boys. <laughs> and I can tell you what happens when you when you push your weight around with your bigger brothers. It doesn't work, you know. So you got to be a little, you know. And here's Joseph, and he's he's taking a demeanor with them that that they would never have associated with Joseph. He speaks to them harshly. And then 
it emphasizes again that they don't recognize him and he recognizes them. Uh, and then I want you to notice what it says in verse 9. It says, Joseph remembered the dreams which he had about them and said to them, you are spies, you have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. Well, it's pretty easy for us to identify with him remembering the dreams, right? Okay, here he is, he's sitting here, his brothers come, they bow down. And, you know, I just, I mean, we're remembering the dreams, right? So certainly Joseph is remembering the dreams. And then begins this process, this long process. It's going to go on here for a long time. We're going to be talking about it for several weeks. This give and take between Joseph and his brothers. And it starts with this accusation of them being spies. Okay. It gets very complicated. Joseph comes up with plan and then he alters the plan. And he puts them in jail and takes them out of jail. And then he throws one back in jail. You know, he goes, and there's all this stuff that goes on over the next number of weeks as we're going to be talking about this in our study of Joseph's life. Uh, so there's all this stuff going on. And, and, and I'm sure if you're like me, I'm sorry if you are, but if you're like me, you know, you've probably been thinking, what is Joseph up to? Why is Joseph doing this? And, and you know, if we're honest, we have to ask ourselves the question, is, is Joseph exacting a little flesh here? Is Joseph, is Joseph getting a little revenge here with his brothers? Is, is some of Joseph's bitterness still down in there for what's happened to him and is that coming to the surface here and and so he's or or is or is Joseph just so remarkably wise and so good at thinking on his feet that he's able to come up with, and he's got this complicated plan of how to deal with his brothers and there's a lot of stuff that boils to the surface over the next couple chapters because of the things that Joseph does with his brothers. And, and it ultimately ends in resolution and reconciliation. But you, you have to ask yourself, is that what he intended? Was that his plan? When right here off the bat, at the beginning of the game, he says, you are spies. And so, this is the question that commentators wrestle with. Was you know, is, is this really a plan that Joseph came up with and he's really got a goal of something he's moving towards? Or is Joseph kind of just reacting? And a little bit of his frustration and anger and things with his brothers is coming out and he's kind of taking it out of them. Now, that's the question we have to wrestle with. And the narrator doesn't spell it out in black and white for us. But I think he does give us a subtle clue. And I think the clue is in verse 9. Before he tells us that Joseph accused his brothers of being a spy, what does he tell us? He remembered the dreams. 
Now, I want you to notice, and commentators are good at pointing this out, and I think it's, a, I think it's an astute point. Pardon? Yeah. The, the, the point is that when Joseph accuses them, of, when, when the narrator says that Joseph accuses them of being spies, he ties that to Joseph remembering the dreams. He does not tie it to Joseph remembering his mistreatment. Notice that? He doesn't say, Joseph remembered his mistreatment and how they sold him into slavery, and so he said, you are spies. He said, Joseph remembered the dreams. And it was remembering the dreams that prompts him to say, you are spies. Exactly. And and that's where I'm headed with this, but before I get to that point, I want you to think a little bit about this thing about people bowing down to you. Because when we first read about those dreams and studied those dreams and Joseph says, you know, they're going to, you know, what do we think about? What impresses us about those dreams? And his brothers bowing down to him and his parents bowing down to him. What impresses us is the idea of honor and power, right? That's what impressed his brothers and his dad about it. You think we're going to bow down to you? You You know, what they're thinking about is honor and power, and that's what they associate with bowing down to Him. But what does Jesus teach us about greatness? Who is the greatest among you? He is what? The servant of all. Right? And what is so striking to me here is... is we get, I, I told you, Joseph is a great man, and I think he's flawed, but he's a great man, and here's an example of his greatness. Is that, you know, I think that throughout this whole thing, that Joseph has realized that if his brothers and his parents are going to be bowing down to him, he's focusing not on the honor and not on the power of that, but on the responsibility of that to be a servant. And so when he sees his brothers bowing down to him and he remembers that dream, what he's thinking about is, ah, I finally got the upper hand. That's not what he's thinking. He's thinking, now comes the time to fulfill the responsibility that is implied in those dreams. But how does he do that? He doesn't know anything. He's looking out at his ten brothers and Benjamin is missing. What does that make him think? What are you thinking if you're Joseph and your youngest, your younger brother is missing? They sold him into slavery. He's come to mischief. Something's happened. To, where is Benjamin? How's Dad? What's, where, where are these guys now? What, what, is, what is their frame of mind? This is, you know, I've changed. Have they changed? These are all the questions which, as Mike pointed out, Joseph doesn't know the answer to. And Joseph cannot act in his position of responsibility and servant to his family until he gets the answer to those questions. And the charge of them being spies is not something that just comes out of the blue. 
This is something that's part of Joseph's job. He, that's his job. He's got all these foreigners coming. He's got foreigners coming to him every day. And he has to ferret out which, which of these people are legit and which people are here to steal our grain and, and do all this. So, so this is his job to ferret out the bad guys. <laughs> so it's just a, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't believe they're spies, but it becomes a good cover for him to accuse them of being spies. Because he knows what happens when you accuse somebody of being a spy. What do they do? They, pardon? They deny it. They deny it? How do they deny it? They tell who they are. They start giving information. And that's what Joseph needs. He needs information before he can act. Now, I want you to notice one thing Joseph does not do. And this just kind of goes to a hobby horse I like to ride. <laughs> you heard me do it before. But Joseph sees his brothers. The one thing that's conspicuous that he does not do is he does not say, guys, I'm Joseph and I want you to know I forgive you. He doesn't do, he doesn't extend to them forgiveness until he knows that they've repented. And the idea that we just, as Christians, have some willy-nilly obligation just to forgive everybody no matter what is both unbiblical and counterproductive. And if Joseph had at that point said to his brothers, it's okay, guys, I forgive you, a lot of the things that did unfold and a lot of the positive things that happened and the tremendous things that happened in the life of Judah would not be obvious to us. But Joseph withheld forgiveness until he saw repentance in his brothers. And we'll see that as the story goes forward. Okay? Well, next week we'll pick it up at verse 10 and go through the next 10 or 12 verses. I do have sheets for next week, yeah.